I've never been a huge fan of horror movies, which might come as a surprise given my choice of topic for a podcast. I enjoyed the old Hitchcock ones, like Psycho and The Birds. Then again, I don't know if those can even be considered horror by today's standards. But for the most part, I find them terrifying. I spent half of Nightmare on Elm Street with my head buried in a pillow. We watch horror movies for different reasons, and though I'm too jumpy to watch them myself, I can understand the appeal. A good horror movie is totally immersive up until the end. The few times I've managed to suck it up and watch one all the way through, I can say with total certainty that I've never been bored. Horror movies are also an escape from reality. The shocking things we watch in horror movies don't happen in real life. Except when they do. I'm your host Natalie, and this is Talk Murder With Me, Episode 4, Cassie Jo Stoddart, The Scream Murder. The year was 2005, and Frank and Allison Contreras were excited for their move from the bustling San Francisco Bay Area to the home they had purchased in Pocatello, Idaho. Pocatello is in Bannock County in southeastern Idaho. As of 2019, the population was estimated to be just under 57,000 people. Pocatello is small as far as cities go and very conservative. More than half of Pocatello residents are Latter-day Saints, or Mormons, if you will. Just an aside, if it's bugging you that you can't remember where you've heard of Pocatello before, it's where the hit true crime documentary Abducted in Plain Sight took place. The Contreras' new home was located on Whispering Cliffs Drive. It has four bedrooms and three bathrooms and sits on two acres of land. It's a quiet, secluded area which would offer a much calmer, more easygoing lifestyle than the fast-paced, unrelenting one they lived in San Francisco. Frank and Allison had two children from previous relationships and one child of their own. They were certain that their family would be happy in their new home. The following year, in September 2006, the Contreras' made plans for a weekend getaway. They needed someone to watch their pets while they were gone, specifically their three cats and two dogs. Their niece, 16-year-old Cassie Jo, who had babysat for them on several occasions, was an obvious choice. Frank and Allison thought highly of Cassie. She didn't drink or do drugs, she got straight A's in school, she was an all-round responsible girl whom they trusted would take good care of their animals and not trash their house while they were gone. Cassie jumped at the opportunity to house sit. She loved spending time at her aunt and uncle's house. Plus, it would be an easy way to make some extra cash. Cassie Jo Stoddart was born December 21, 1989, in Pocatello. She had an older sister, Christy, and a younger brother, Andrew. Cassie's parents were not together when this story takes place. I couldn't find any information about her biological father. The Stoddart children were very close with their grandparents growing up and lived between their house and their mother and stepfather's house. Cassie was a talented artist and loved music. She was smart, kind, and strong-willed. Her brother Andrew described her as his role model, even though she was only a year and a half older than him. Andrew and Cassie were not just siblings, they were best friends. While they sometimes argued, as all brothers and sisters do, they pretty much did everything together. Cassie was a junior at Pocatello High School, where she met her boyfriend, Matt Beckham. As of September 2006, the two had been dating for about five months. 
After school on Friday, September 22nd, Cassie arrived at her aunt and uncle's house on Whispering Cliffs Drive, where she would house it until Sunday. Since the house was pretty much in the middle of nowhere, Cassie asked her aunt and uncle if Matt could come and hang out with her in the evenings. They told her that that would be fine. At 6 p.m. that evening, Matt arrived at the house. The two decided that they would watch a movie, so they chose Kill Bill Volume 2. Matt also invited two of their other friends over, Brian Draper and Tori Adamchik. Brian and Tori were classmates at Pocatello High School, and while Cassie considered them friends, they weren't particularly close. In fact, Cassie was a little irritated at Matt for inviting them over without asking her. Matt told Cassie that it wasn't a big deal. They were just going to hang out and watch a movie after all. Brian and Tori arrived between 6.30 and 7 p.m., and Cassie gave the three boys a tour of her aunt and uncle's house. While she was showing them the basement, Brian unlocked the door, which led to the backyard, without Cassie's knowledge. Once Cassie finished giving the tour, the four returned to the living room to watch the movie. About halfway through the movie, however, Brian and Tori told Matt and Cassie that they were bored and wanted to leave. They said that they wanted to go to the movie theater instead. By this point, they had been at the house for about two hours. Cassie was not particularly sad to see them leave because she wanted to spend time alone with Matt. About 15 minutes after the boys left, the power in the house went out. Being plunged into darkness in the big, isolated home made Matt and Cassie uneasy. They knew the circuit breaker was in the basement, but they were seriously spooked, so there was no way that they were going down there. Instead, they sat on the couch and huddled together, hoping the lights would come back on. At the same time, one of the Contreras' dogs began growling and staring at the door, which led to the basement stairs, which of course added to Matt and Cassie's fear. Matt had a bad feeling, so he called his mother, asking if he could stay the night at the house with Cassie. His mom said no, she was going to pick him up as planned. There were differing accounts regarding his mother's response. Some say she told Matt that Cassie could come over and stay at their house that night, while others made no mention of her making this offer. Either way, whether or not Cassie was invited to stay at Matt's that night, she felt responsible for the house and the animals and did not want to leave. Eventually, some of the lights did come back on. Matt and Cassie began to feel a little better. At around 11pm, Matt's mom came to pick him up. Cassie and Matt said their goodbyes. Little did he know, this would be the last time he would see Cassie alive. Two days later, on September 24th, the Contreras' arrived home as planned. It was Frank and Allison's 13-year-old daughter who was the first to enter the home. The front door was unlocked, which she found strange, but she didn't think too much of it. When she went into the living room, however, she began screaming. Her parents ran inside to see what was the matter. There was blood everywhere, on the carpet, the furniture, and the walls. On the floor next to the couch lay the body of Cassie Jo Stoddart. Frank Contreras called the police right away. Cassie's devastated mother and stepfather soon arrived at the Whispering Cliffs home. Andrew Stoddart later described his stepfather calling him, sobbing down the phone that his sister had been murdered. I dropped the phone and just crumbled to the ground, he said. I didn't even know how to process it. Word of the murder spread quickly through the community. Things like this don't happen here. 
Pocatello residents would say, as you tend to hear people remark when referring to something terrible happening in their small town. And for the most part, they're right. Horrifying, unfathomable things don't happen there. Until they do. Police quickly arrived at the Whispering Cliffs home and began processing the scene. The sheriff's department put the Contreras family up in a hotel during this time. Investigators could not find any signs of forced entry, suggesting that Cassie let her killer, or killers, into the house. She likely knew them. Apart from the scene in the living room, the rest of the house appeared undisturbed. None of the Contreras' belongings were missing, which ruled out burglary as a motive. The dogs and cats had been locked in a separate room, but they were fine. Cassie's autopsy report revealed the sheer brutality she suffered at the hands of her killer or killers. She had been stabbed 30 times in the chest, neck, back, and abdomen. Between 9 and 12 of the stab wounds were fatal. She had defensive wounds on her hands and arms. It was estimated that she had been dead for about two days when she was discovered, meaning she was murdered on Friday night. As is commonplace in cases like this one, suspicions immediately fell on Cassie's boyfriend, Matt Beckham. Matt was the last person to see Cassie alive. Furthermore, the attack was vicious and brutal. Stabbing someone 30 times is overkill. It's something which is frequently seen in a frenzied attack perpetrated by someone who knows the victim, often a romantic partner who has flown into a rage, perhaps after a bitter argument. Matt was eager to help the investigators in any way he could, however. During questioning, he gave a detailed timeline of how he spent the evening, and with whom. He detailed how Brian Draper and Tori Adamchik had been at the home, but had left early. He told them about the phone call he had made to his mom about wanting to stay with Cassie at the house because he didn't want to leave her alone. But his mom picked him up, and he had spent the rest of the evening with his parents before going to bed. He had records to show any calls and texts he had made. The following day, Saturday the 23rd, he had repeatedly called Cassie, but she never answered her phone, he said. Furthermore, Matt did not have a car. I'm not sure if he actually knew how to drive, meaning he needed to get rides everywhere. Investigators were quite sure that Matt was not responsible for his girlfriend's murder. The combination of his timeline, phone records, the alibi from his parents, and his cooperation made them confident that he was not involved. They pressed him hard, bearing in mind that being Cassie's boyfriend made him a good suspect. But the more they questioned him, the more their suspicions were lifted. They asked him some questions about his friends, Brian and Tori. Matt told them that he was better friends with Tori, and that Cassie had been friends with them, but they weren't really close. Both boys had shown interest in Cassie in the past and had flirted with her, he added. On September 25th, 2006, Brian and Tori were brought to the station to be questioned. The two boys were led to separate rooms along with their parents. They were allowed to have their parents with them as they were only 16 at the time. Both boys sat for several interviews with investigators over the next few days. Before speaking to investigators, Tori had told his mother that he had been with Cassie, Matt, and Brian that night, but had nothing to do with Cassie's murder. Tori's mother, of course, did not want to believe that her son could be capable of something so heinous, so she did not question him. As the questioning from investigators progressed, the two boys became increasingly frazzled and were unable to keep their stories straight. 
They explained that after they left the Whispering Cliffs house, they went to the movie theater, but they had nothing to prove that they were there. Brian originally said that they went to see the movie Pulse, but when asked to describe the plot of the movie, he couldn't do it. On September 27, 2006, three days after Cassie's body was discovered, Brian Draper cracked. He told investigators what happened that night, but he didn't exactly confess. Rather, he said that Tori murdered Cassie Stoddart. Brian's story went like this. He told investigators that he and Tori went to Cassie's that night, and while she was giving them a tour, he unlocked the back door in the basement so that he and Tori could re-enter later, without Matt or Cassie knowing. After watching part of the movie with Matt and Cassie, he and Tori left, telling the other two that they were going to the movie theater, but they never actually left the property. Instead, they went outside for about 10 minutes. I believe this is when they went to Tori's car and put on Halloween masks, gloves, and grabbed the knives they had brought along. They then went back into the house via the unlocked basement door and hid in a small room where the circuit breaker was located. They turned the power off at the circuit breaker in hopes that this would lure Matt and or Cassie to the basement where they would quote-unquote scare them. But when they never came down, they turned the lights back on. Brian and Tori stayed in the basement. It wasn't totally clear whether they knew that Matt left, but I would assume they heard him leave when his mom arrived. They messed around with the circuit breaker some more, hoping that someone would come down to investigate. But when no one did come down, Brian said, Tori ran up the stairs and began stabbing Cassie. This is where things get a little unclear as the boys turned on each other. In Brian's fourth interview, he told investigators that while Tori was the first to stab Cassie, he, meaning Brian, did stab her in the leg and chest, but only because Tori was threatening him to do so, because Cassie was going to die anyway, according to Tori. Now Tori could no longer claim that he was innocent, as he had up to that point, but he did his best to wiggle his way out of any accountability by pointing the finger at Brian. Tori was obviously implicated, but he said that it was all Brian's idea, that he didn't really know what was happening, and he thought they were just going to scare Cassie. He insisted that he believed they were just making a movie, like Wes Craven's classic horror flick, Scream. This was why they wore the scary masks and had the menacing-looking knives. They were planning to make a slasher film of their own. That was all. It was Tori's explanation that resulted in this case commonly being referred to as the scream murder. When they were in the basement, Tori said, he was too scared to go upstairs. Then, when he did eventually go up, he discovered that Brian had stabbed Cassie to death. The blame game did not exactly work out for either of the boys, as investigators were about to come across a jackpot in terms of evidence against them. Brian led investigators to Black Rock Canyon, where he and Tori had taken the evidence from the crime scene that connected them to the murders, including the knives they had used to stab Cassie. They recovered close to two dozen items from the area. I won't list all of them, but they included a pair of black boots, rubber gloves, a pair of black gloves, four different knives, one of which had a serrated blade, and one looked like a dagger. Also amongst the items were Halloween-style masks, a Sony videotape, and a camera. Many of the items were partially burned. One such item was a handwritten note, and given the burn marks, they couldn't make out exactly what it said. 
but it appeared to detail some of their plans for the murder. They were able to decipher something about the possibility of killing Matt if he was still at the house. Surely, a piece of evidence like this one would suggest premeditation. As investigators would find out from examining the camera, Brian and Tori considered themselves to be budding filmmakers. They were mainly interested in making documentary-style films. I guess you could say that they were the subjects of their own movies, as they liked going around documenting their everyday lives. On top of Brian's confession, it was what the boys talked about in the films that really cemented investigators' beliefs that they had their guys. The videos of interest were filmed between 8pm on September 21st, the evening before the murder, and 11.31pm on September 22nd, after the murder. I'll put a link to the full transcripts of the videos as they're too long to read out here. I'll go over some of the things that the boys said that were of particular interest to investigators. A word of caution, these are the boys' actual words that were used against them in trial. The things that they say are very disturbing, and there is some foul language used. The following comes from a film recorded on September 21st, 2006, at 8.36pm. Tori is driving, and Brian is in the passenger seat, filming. Brian says, We found our victim, and sad as it may be that she's our friend, but you know what? We all have to make sacrifices. Our first victim is going to be Cassie Stoddart and her friends. We'll find out if she has friends over, if she's going to be alone in a big dark house out in the middle of nowhere. How perfect can you get? I mean, holy shit, dude. Tori says, I'm horny just thinking about it. Brian says, we're going to go down in history. We're going to be just like Scream except real life terms. Tori says, that sounds good, baby. Brian says, we're going to be murderers like, let's see, Ted Bundy, like the Hillside Strangler. No, Tori replies. The Zodiac Killer, Brian says. Those people were amateurs compared to what we're gonna be, Tori replied. The following is from September 22nd, the day of the murder, just before 8.30am. Tori and Brian are at school and approach Cassie at her locker. Brian says, Hey look, it's Cassie. Hello, Cassie. Cassie says hello. Brian laughs. I'm getting you on tape. Say hi, please. Cassie says hi. Around noon the same day, the boys are sitting at a table and the camera is facing them. Tori is looking down and writing in a notebook. I was planning to kill him, he said. Brian says, September 22nd, 2006. We're skipping our fourth hour class. We're writing our plan right now for tonight. It's gonna be cool. Tori is still writing. We're making our death list for tonight, he says. Brian says, hopefully this will go smoothly and we can get our first kill done and then keep going. Tori says, for you future serial killers watching this tape, they laugh. Then they talk about the previous attempts they made to murder people, but those times didn't work out. Tori says, hopefully you don't have like eight or nine failures like we have. Brian says, yeah, we've probably tried maybe ten times, but they've never been home alone, so... Or when they have, their parents show up, Tori says. As long as you're patient, you know, and we were patient, and now we're getting paid off, Brian says. Because our victim's home alone, so we got our plan all worked out now. I'm sorry, Cassie's family, but she had to be the one. We have to stick with the plan. And she's perfect, so she's gonna die. They laugh some more. 
The next film was taken the same day at 9.53 p.m. It's dark, and the two boys are sitting in the car near the Whispering Cliffs Drive house. Brian says, We're in his car. The time is 9.50, September 22, 2006. Unfortunately, we have the grueling task of killing our two friends, and they are right there in that house, just down the street. Tori says, We just talked to them. We were there for about an hour. Brian says, We checked the whole house. I unlocked the back doors. It's all unlocked. Now we just gotta wait. We're really nervous right now, but we're ready. At 11.31pm, Tori and Brian are back in the car. Tori is driving, and Brian is filming. Brian says, Just killed Cassie. We just left her house. This is not a fucking joke. Tori says, I'm shaking. Brian says, I stabbed her in the throat. I saw her lifeless body. It just disappeared. Dude, I just killed Cassie. Tori says, oh my god. Brian, oh, oh fuck. That felt like it wasn't even real. I mean, it went by so fast. Tori, shut the fuck up. We gotta get our act straight. Brian, it's okay. We, we'll just go buy movie tickets now. The other items recovered at Black Rock Canyon were taken to the lab for forensic analysis. The partially burned black gloves were soaked with blood. DNA testing showed that the blood was Cassie's. Her blood was also present on a black-handled serrated knife. Tori's DNA was discovered on one of the masks. Brian Draper and Tori Adamchik were tried separately for the murder of Cassie Joe's daughter. Brian's trial began in early April 2007, and Tori's began on May 31, 2007. They were each charged with one count of murder in the first degree and one count of conspiracy to commit murder. They were both tried as adults, despite being 16 at the time. A friend of Tori's, 18-year-old Joe Lucero, testified at both trials that around August 31, 2006, he received a call from Tori asking if he would buy some knives for him. Together, Tori, Joe, and Brian went to a local pawn shop to buy the knives. On the way, they stopped at an ATM so that Brian could withdraw money. Brian provided $40 for the knives out of the $45 they paid. Tori chose one knife, and Brian chose three. The medical examiner who performed Cassie's autopsy testified that it did appear that Cassie had been stabbed with different knives. For example, a serrated knife and a dagger-style knife could have been used. Brian did not leave his defense team with much to work with, given that he confessed, although he pointed the finger at Tori, led investigators to where they dumped the evidence in Black Rock Canyon, and investigators watched tapes of him and Tori blabbing all about their plans to murder Cassie. Tori, on the other hand, stuck to the defense at trial that he did not know that Brian was actually planning to murder Cassie. He thought that the whole thing was part of their movie, including the films they made beforehand, the buying of the knives, and the film they made afterwards. I personally think this is complete and utter BS, but maybe that's just me. Both boys' defense attorneys attempted to have the videos made inadmissible in court and tried to have the trial moved as the videos became public. Everyone was able to watch Brian Draper and Tori Adamchik on film talking about their plans to kill their classmate and then brag about the killing afterwards. 
The prosecution in both trials claimed that the boy's motive for murdering Cassie was fame and notoriety. They talked on the tape about how they were going to be infamous, like Ted Bundy and the Hillside Strangler. Excuse me, they were going to be even worse. According to Tori, Bundy was an amateur, remember? It also came out at trial that Brian was fascinated with the Columbine High School shooters, Dylan Claybold and Eric Harris. He felt as though he could relate to them, because like them, he had always felt like an outcast. He aspired to create chaos and destruction of the same magnitude they did when they walked into their high school and shot their classmates. On April 17, 2007, Brian Draper was found guilty of first-degree murder and conspiracy to commit murder. On June 8, 2007, Tori Adamchik was found guilty of the same charges. On August 21, 2007, both boys were sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole, plus 30 years for the conspiracy charge. Both boys appealed their convictions, albeit with differing degrees of determination. It seemed as though Brian was more accepting of his punishment, while Tori, who continued to claim his innocence, was less so. Tori's family were firmly behind him at the time and continue to be to this day. They have supported him emotionally and financially to no end. His mother, Shannon Adamchik, has written a book about her son and his experience of being tried as an adult despite being a juvenile at the time of his crime. I have not read the book and I'm not here to judge Shannon Adamchik. I can't even begin to imagine how she must feel or the emotional turmoil this experience has had on her. Of course, I understand the innate need of a mother to see the best in her child, but I also believe that being Tori's mother makes her biased, to say the least. The attorneys for both boys filed appeals to the Idaho Supreme Court. Brian was seeking to have his conviction vacated or to be given a limited life sentence that would allow him to be released on parole if he was approved after 30 years. His attorney, Molly Husky, said that her client's immaturity and poor judgment were partially attributable to his youth at the time of the crime, and he deserved a chance for release. She also said that the jury received erroneous instructions. The appeal was denied by the court, but they did throw out the conspiracy conviction on the grounds that the jurors were given erroneous instructions on that charge. As for Tory's appeal, his attorney, Dennis Benjamin, specified eight different points of concern with his client's conviction. He argued that Tory's sentence was cruel and unusual punishment given he was just 16 at the time of the murder. He also said that there was a lack of evidence to prove that Tory actually stabbed Cassie, or that any stab wound he may have inflicted was a deadly wound. So he was pretty much saying that yes, he may have stabbed her with every intention of killing her, but because none of the wounds he inflicted were deadly, he should get some sort of relief. This is definitely one of the more mind-boggling arguments I have heard in an appeal for a murder conviction. The appeal was not granted and both of Tori's convictions were upheld. Tori Adamchik was not giving up, however. In July 2015, he was granted a hearing for post-conviction relief. Attorney Benjamin claimed that his client's former attorney did not call character witnesses who could have changed the outcome of his sentencing. This felt like a weak argument to me, but the judge was willing to entertain a hearing. In March 2016, however, his request for post-conviction relief was denied. So, he appealed this decision to the Idaho Supreme Court. In 2017, the court rejected the appeal. Of course, Tory appealed the state Supreme Court decision. 
U.S. Magistrate Judge Candy Dale ruled in 2019 that the evidence supports his murder conviction, and the state Supreme Court did not err in affirming his life sentence without parole. In May 2020, he appealed this latest ruling by Judge Dale to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. There has not been a ruling on this appeal that I could find as of May 2021. Also important to take into consideration is the 2012 Miller v. Alabama case, in which the United States Supreme Court ruled that mandatory sentences of life without the possibility of parole are unconstitutional for juveniles, even in cases of murder. In 2016, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in Montgomery v. Louisiana that the Miller v. Alabama ruling should be applied retroactively. The decision made more than 2,000 inmates across the country eligible for resentencing or the possibility of eventual freedom, including Tori Adamchik and Brian Draper. Cassie's aunt and uncle, Frank and Allison Contreras, who had only been living in the Whispering Cliffs home for about a year when Cassie was killed, had their lives turned upside down by the murder. After returning to the house once it was no longer a crime scene, Frank Contreras told the Idaho State Journal in 2014 that they had the house repainted, they put in new carpet, and bought new furniture. They tried to make the place feel like home again, but the painful memories continued to linger. They knew that they would never again experience the joy that the house once brought them. The emotional toll hit Allison hard. She lost her job and fell into a depression. Their daughter, who found Cassie's body, had a breakdown and attempted suicide. Frank had to pick up a second job. I just quit loving and started drinking, he said. The pressure on the marriage and his family was almost too much to bear, but things eventually did get better. Although things are looking up, Frank said, they continue to feel trapped in a house they can no longer stand to live in. Every year since the murder, Frank and Allison put the house on the market. This was in 2014. I couldn't find any word as to whether it has since sold. Andrew's daughter, Cassie's brother, spoke to the Idaho State Journal in 2016, 10 years after his sister's murder. He explained how everyone was affected differently. It took them years before they could really talk about it. It did hit their mom, Anna, particularly hard, however. While everything felt very dark for a long time, the loss of his sister did bring him some perspective about life. It makes you appreciate things a lot more, he said. You never know how fragile life is. You never know how easy it is for someone to be gone the next day. As for whether he could ever forgive his sister's killers, he said that he could never do that. Every time a new court date comes up related to another appeal, his family's wounds are reopened. Now, they just want to move forward with their lives. They don't want to sit in any more courtrooms or see Brian Draper or Atori Adamchik on the news. We love her. It's always going to be a part of us. It's not like it's ever going away, Andrew said. It's always on the back of our minds but we focus on keeping our family strong instead of focusing on the bad. We focus on the good and when she was still around. Nobody should ever have to go through this. Thank you so much for listening to episode four. 
If you enjoyed it, please consider giving me a five-star review on iTunes and hitting subscribe on your podcast app. If you'd like to support the show, you can become a patron for just $3 a month at patreon.com slash talkmurderwithme. My Patreon is currently under construction while I grow my podcast, but I hope to start putting out bonus episodes in the near future. The links to my social media accounts are in the show notes for this episode. If you'd like to get in touch, please email me at talkmurderwithme at gmail.com. Until next time, friends.